Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Magic and the Other Guy. Kevin and I are sitting outside my home on the banks of Lake Wiley. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. You? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Beautiful weather. No humidity, which for me and Charlotte is a wonderful thing. Can we book this for now and keep it through the, through the summer season? I think we may have used that line before. Yeah, probably, but, but I, I still feel the same way. <laughs> it stands repeating. It stands repeating every week that you've not got high humidity in the summer in Charlotte, that's for sure. I mean, it's almost breezy enough. A light jacket would be fine right now. Yeah. I never know what we're going to be talking about when we sit down and have our conversations around the lake, but you do. So, key is all in. What are we talking about? Well, quite often, I mean, we, and we enjoy talking about it. It's a great, great topic in general is uh, entertainment and forms of entertainment and such like that. And uh, one that we haven't really kind of sub, sub hit on is uh, comedians. Comedians? Yeah, okay. comedians. Yeah. So some favorites and some ones you know, we grew up with and enjoy to this day. And yes. All that. So. Start us off, which is your, I mean, we're not going to say an all-time favorite comedian, but one of your favorite comedians, who would it be? Well, I kind of like think, think back early on, back in the, you know, this is also, you got to remember, this is the, the 80s in the U.S. Yeah. was a big boom of, of comedy. Okay. Uh, in fact, I mean, you'll, you'll hear some uh, the comedians today talking about back in the day, there was this just boom of comedy clubs opening up yes. everywhere. And it was like the big thing to do in the 80s. Now, granted, I was a teenager, so I wasn't right. old enough really to go to those, but they started being big stand-up specials on HBO and such like that. So some of the earlier ones back then were, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait, Seinfeld was getting started. Yeah. And you're coming off, you know, there was, of course, the famous ones from the 70s, you know, your Richard Pryor, your Red Fox, uh, and such like that. And even further back, you go back to, uh, who am I thinking of, uh, Don Rickles and Bob Newhart and sure. people like that. Sure. Yeah. So kind of my first introduction was, you know, as you're getting a teenager and kind of getting in with friends and, and we, you'd rent tapes. You know, of different comedians. Eddie Murphy was a big one that happened right at, you know, around that Saturday Night Live time. He, he so had, this is more your descriptions here of stand-up comics, really? Yes. Yeah, doing stand-up yeah. routines, right? Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, they evolve into other things which we can you know, definitely continue on yes. with. But mostly yeah. the ones that you know, kind of had a routine or started out as, as stand-up. Obviously, many of them have gone on to much bigger things. Sure. But uh, so we were kind of, you know, in that time, you, you would also uh, get videotapes, but you'd also get, you know, you'd, you'd buy the cassette of them, you know, and listen yeah. to the cassettes. So yeah, it's a totally yeah. different world than what you have now, you know, with, you know, YouTube, pull up anything. And then to see one live was a, a kind of kind of a big deal. Yeah. And really the first one that I recall us seeing was, this was probably 88, 89. So I'm in, you know, college age. And this was in Knoxville because I was at the University of Tennessee. But Paula Poundstone, we went and saw her at a small little club. Actually, we were kind of surprised because she was pretty big then. And to be playing such a small room, yeah. But it was very nice and a nice intimate show, and and we had a great time. They're very cool those stand-up clubs. And when you describe in the 1980s, there was this resurgence, if you like, of um, stand-up venues. That's exactly what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic as well. Really, England. Yeah, I was, was I was curious as to if they had the yeah, same thing happen. England was going through the same thing, and I think um, I'm far from expert on well far from experts on almost everything in life but i know a little bit about most things but not an awful lot about anything in particular uh but i, I always think there's a great synergy between the comedy 
in the United States and the comedy in England. And so what was happening on one side of the Atlantic was being mirrored to a degree on the other side of the Atlantic. And in the 1980s, 1982, is the year that's stuck in my mind. I don't know if it was a, you could describe it as a resurgence or just a new wave of stand-up comics that was, and the movement was called the alternative comic scene. Oh, really? And that's where, we've talked about this before, I'm sure, um, uh, during our podcast, and, and the comics that formed the comic strip and then the young ones were all that cast of characters that were around performing in the clubs of London at the time mm-hmm. and have gone on to much bigger and, and better things. Yeah, and I knew I knew coming into this topic that Rick Mayall is one of your Rick, all-time yeah. favorites, and of yeah. course he's the young ones. We, we ought to get a, if we, if we could get a bonus every time you mention the young ones, <laughs> we'd be doing very well. But uh, but it is something I would, we, we often come back to. But, yes. Yeah. Well, Rick, Rick Mayall formed uh, it was very funny in his own right, of course, and uh, for those who are unfamiliar with, with Rick Mayall, uh, gentlest, and now you've mentioned, you know, we, we have access to the internet and that's changed everything. Um, have a look on YouTube and bring up some Rick Mayall or the young ones and, and just have a look at Rick Mayall's antics. But he formed a very tight-knit partnership with a guy called Adrian Edmondson, who I think had very little exposure actually over in the United States other than he played uh, Vivian in, yep. in, in The Young Ones. Yeah, that's the only thing I remember us getting was via MTV, as we've yeah. discussed, was that one show. Yeah, so Vivian, uh, excuse me, Adrian Edmondson and Rick Mayall together formed this partnership known as, um, well, they were Mayall and Edmondson and they've been in a lot of things together. Uh, but in the very early days in the 1980s, they were the Dangerous Brothers and there'd be a lot of really out of control slapstick comedy on stage, which really set them apart. Uh, from most other acts. Uh, but a lot of those group of alternative comedians went on to bigger and better things. And now, um, with the passing years, as is always the case, um, and uh, you could say the same about a lot of punk artists in the music industry who the establishment would try and dismiss and look down upon and be very unwelcoming to. As the years have progressed, they've now all become national treasures. Exactly. You know. Look at uh, John Lydon, Johnny Rotten. At one time, certainly England, most of England <laughs> despised him and couldn't stand him, but he just kept on and on and on being who he is, and now he's become this, this sort of cult character, almost like a national treasure that folks love. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, funny how this happens. You can't become a legend when you first start. That's, you have to become a legend down the line. That's right. Yes, yes, and another great... Uh, well, um, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie were also around at that time, because... Hugh Laurie, perhaps most famous for uh, playing House in yeah. House. Yeah, and here we know, yeah, it's hard to think of him in anything actually comedic here because right. we're used to seeing him in dramas. I mean, he was in Stuart Little, which was kind of a, you know, it was middle of the road. It was yes. funny, but, you know, also serious at the same time. But. Well, Hugh Laurie's ability to morph that character into an American doctor is quite incredible because you know when you hear you Hugh Laurie speak naturally he's got this wonderful clear English accent uh, Cambridge educated along with Stephen Fry and Stephen Fry again talking about folks that have become national treasures and we may have mentioned Stephen Fry on another episode of matching the other guy Stephen Fry famous for many things, but in England, famous for recording the narration for the Harry Potter books. Yeah, yeah, we've mentioned that. Before. Yeah, and Stephen Fry has now become this absolute national treasure of radio, and people give him great respect and very well read, and 
whatever the subject is being discussed, whatever Stephen Fry says, most of the world will agree with. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, it's funny how this folks at the time, you know, the, the young upstart comedians playing in the smallest, dingiest night spots available, anywhere that'll put them on stage to get a break. Yeah. And their careers grow and grow and grow. Well, I think Stephen Fry, I just don't think, can you think of anything that uh, the Americans would associate him with, really? He's still really he's never still, really no, he's really never, broken here with he, anything. He may not care to, but right. I can't think of anything that we go, oh, he's the one that's in whatever yes. or went on to do whatever. I have a feeling. I know him um, from some British things, obviously. But. I have a feeling he may have played Mycroft, Sherlock Holmes' brother in the Sherlock Holmes movies of fairly recent times. Is a Sherlock Holmes, the Robert Downey Jr. Robert ones. Downey Jr. I have a he feeling. He might have. I have a feeling. I and I've seen those, but it's, you saw it once in the yes. film. That's all I've seen them. So. And for those unfamiliar with the Sherlock Holmes stories, Sherlock Holmes, absolutely brilliant detective, as we all know and love. But Sherlock was always playing a settled second fiddle in terms of his intelligence to his infinitely brighter, more intelligent brother. Mycroft, who you are hardly ever heard of in the stories, but it was there in the background. And whenever Sherlock was really struggling to solve something, Mycroft was immediately all over it. And this would be a great annoyance to Sherlock, you know. So that's where. Oh, so okay. Stephen Fry was absolutely perfect. You know, he for that might, role. yeah, he might have. I'd have to look back at IMDb or something. Yes. Find out. Yes, but uh, I, I was very, I was very much taken to that alternative comedic scene in England in the 1980s because it was a, it was a real breath of fresh air. I think British comedy, and probably to an extent American comedy, had become very safe and set in its ways and now when you look back on some of the subject matters which comedians thought were amusing back in the 60s and 70s we would now not consider them to be amusing at all. So there was a, there was a definite sense of we need to be talking about other things. We need to be addressing comedy in a new way. Yeah. And I was attracted to that. I thought that was a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mentioned earlier, um, I've always loved Don Rickles. Yeah. And of course, he's, he's passed on now, but he had a very long career, lived, lived quite, a, quite a good ways. But I tell you, when it was, you know, for, for years, you know, my latter years, if he was going to be on a, a nighttime talk show, I either saw it or I recorded it because I would not miss Rickles on a show because he was always hilarious to me he always was steady and good and a good personality to have on some folks some comedians in this case but some folks just have that natural ability to be funny all the time it's it's difficult to explain how they do it isn't yeah. it i mean in our little world um of, of motor racing when i was in, involved in tv my 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 go-to character would always be david hobbs i mean david hobbs as you saw him or heard him on set or on broadcast on the shows is exactly how he is all the time going out to dinner with him in the evenings it is exactly the same you, it, it wasn't like you were turning a switch like some some performers are quiet and reserved if not somewhat slightly depressed until the lights are on them and yeah. then they become somebody else they become a character but david was 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 great on camera, very natural, and is tremendous just away from camera. He's a very natural character, but in, in that's my experience of, of one character. But I think some comedians, like you describe, have that, and some don't have that. Some yeah. are some are very reserved. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I always always wouldn't wouldn't miss him. And actually, for for a while there, um, oh gosh, this was probably about 15 years ago. 
Um, I was, and it was kind of when he was, it was coming up. But Russell Brand, I would always want to catch him on the, because he's so quick. Yeah. You know, I think some people are kind of tired of him a bit, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, at the time, yeah. he was so quick with his wit and things that he would just, you know, keep going during during an interview. Yeah. So I would always kind of try to catch him back then. But you know, of course, he's not he's not doing as many projects these days. But no, well, it's funny you should say that. Um, I've never been a particularly big fan of his, but we're all aware of his work. Um, and I cannot, can't put anybody down for their work and their commitment to their work. Fine, yeah, wonderful. Um, but I believe he went through a stage of withdrawal from celebrity because he felt he he was he had become a victim of his own success and wasn't I think just wasn't yeah, that's happy. Probably a good summation. Yeah, just wasn't happy about it. You know? And of course, the press without diverging off what we're talking about, the press I think in in most countries, but certainly the the British press love to encourage celebrities up to a point and then like sharks they're in for the kill and want to destroy the character yeah you know? and uh, i can see that being a terrible problem <laughs> not for me obviously i've never had that sort of level of of success but i i think for celebrities big well-known celebrities i'm sure that can be a constant problem yeah and yeah. you know of course we're talking about you know mainly stand-up but it is amazing to see where some of them have come from i mean back in you know like say when we were in college and, and watching you know like you know these specials and stuff or you like say you'd rent up you'd rent a videotape you know of, yeah. of somebody's stand up and that'd be your your evening entertainment or you might watch it two or three times before you returned it but you know i remember ellen DeGeneres was just up kind of up and coming back then and yeah. she was you know one of the you know new comedians everybody like look where she is now so you know a lot of them have gone to really completely different things from where they started and who do you know kind of thing of course this has been getting gone 35 years ago one of my favorite comedians growing up as a kid in England was a chap called Spike Milligan. Does that name ring a bell? Doesn't jump out at me at all. Uh, this is, I mean, he, he's no longer with us, um, but he, he was wonderfully sharp, um, astute comedian. And he's, he got his break, as many comedians did of his generation, from working as entertainers to the troops in the Second World War. Okay. And when the war, the, the, the war in Europe was finished and the troops were returning home, the BBC were very keen to have variety acts on the BBC, on the radio, and then later on TV. And I suppose it's a natural a natural well to draw from, but the producers of the BBC programs would go to the performers who were entertaining the troops and take take those guys. So a lot of them had military backgrounds, um, and they became very big big names. Harry Seacombe was another one, a well known, a wonderful singing voice. He's no longer with us. Harry Seacombe and um, Spike Milligan uh, were part of the Goons, which became a very successful troop prior. Or pre, I should say, Monty Python, and so you, if you ever hear the goons, uh -huh. to me they're a little bit over. They're a little bit over the top sometimes. But if you listen to the, and again, because of the internet, because of YouTube, you can you can listen to the goons radio shows. A lot of inspiration for Python was taken from the goons. So I like to see that sort of progression of of humour. But Spike Milligan was wonderfully creative, and uh, he was a poet as well. Uh, but Sadly, sadly to a degree, he was one of those chaps that suffered from a lot of 
personal insecurity and depression. And he would go through long periods of being very, very unhappy. But uh, again, like we say, when you, you, know, you, you put the stage lights on him, he becomes a different character. He would become absolutely animated. And it was very surreal for his time. I mean, shows that he was doing back in the late 60s to early 70s were a series of shows. I think they were called like Q4, Q5, Q6. Um, basically, it was just a, it was a vehicle to book Spike Milligan on air. And a lot of his sketches, very, very like Monty Python sketches, uh, but this is pre-Python, pre a lot of um, Spike Milligan sketches would run and run and run for, let's say, three or four minutes, but had no ending. There was no way to end the sketch. And so what they, were, what they would do, which is something Monty Python picked up on, I'm sure, copied the same thing to a degree, they would just stop and look at the camera, break the fourth wall, as they say, and look at the camera and say, what are we going to do now? One step to the left. What are we going to do now? One step to the left until they'd gone off set. And then the next sketch would start, you know, which is something that Python picked up on. The same, the same thing is not having a start, a middle, and a, and a definite end to a sketch. And Monty Python hit this, I mean, they, they were the masters of the craft, would roll one sketch into the next one. And one of their wonderful animations would roll into the next sketch they were doing, but nothing ever made sense in a Monty Python show, and nothing ever made sense in a in a Spike Milligan show. But very similar mindset. Yeah. Well, speaking of his, you know, personality-wise, reminds me. It made me think immediately of Robin Williams. Yes. You know, who is that? You know, obviously he had some very bad. Yeah. It's, personal it's, depression and such. But on he was on. And he was one absolutely 100% on. I mean, the bulb was burning overly bright. And then you'd flick the switch and there'd be nothing. What I understand of Robin Williams' life was like that. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, there was another famous comedian, Tony Hancock, in England. And, and this is another chap. I don't think he got his break because of um, entertaining the troops. But he was, he was around that same era. His career started on BBC Radio. And then went on to BBC television, but his his great period of fame was on radio in a show called Hancock's Half Hour. Um, and I've remind, I'm reminded of him because you just talked about uh, Robin Williams and his depression. And Tony Hancock was exactly the same. He was unbelievably hilarious. He had this wonderful, dry. I'm going to call it like a British sense of humour. That dry sense of humour where you're not quite sure if there's a joke there or not and then you realise there is um, and he was terrific at writing scripts very funny, he would always be very self-deprecating, self-effacing and he would play he would play in his show an unsuccessful comedian always looking for work and he was he had a little house in London and the show revolved around the people that would rent the rooms in his house and the interplay between those people but off camera he was exactly that or off off mic he was exactly the same I think he went through a lot of depression but one of probably the most famous Tony Hancock lines and gentle listen again if you are unfamiliar with Tony Hancock or Hancock's half hour go to YouTube because they're all there um, his most famous show, as I'm aware of, was a, was a 30 minute show, part of Hon Hancock's half hour called The Blood Donor, which consists of Tony Hancock wanting to do the right thing for self publicity to donate blood and the, all the antics that revolve around it. And he didn't really realize what giving blood meant. And so he walks into the, the, the blood donor's, let's call it a surgery, to sit down and um, 
and uh, the great line is the nurse says yes we're just going to put this needle in your needle in your arm and, and then we're going to take a, a pint of blood from you it's a pint says, yes a pint of blood that's what we're going to take a pint do you know how much that is that's very nearly an armful boo boo it's a great classic tony hancock line which has lasted for generations lasted, but that's it out there yeah, the yeah I'm, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to look him up yeah he's, a, he's, yeah he's extremely funny and the cast of characters he had around him were also extremely funny um sid james was another wonderful comedian that started off with the carry-on movies i don't know if you ever saw any of the carry-on movies no um of the 1970s they were very famous sort of slapstick comedy um, but there was a whole series of carry-on it's a bit like the Road 2 movies with Bob Hope. It was Carry On and you name it. It was a Carry On this and Carry On that. Uh, Sid James had a, 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 a long career in those, in those films. But uh, I think he's, he's started off his career working alongside Hancock. It's a great golden time. You're talking about the 1980s and the alternative comic scene becoming this big explosion of talent. Uh, but I think in, in Britain it was post-war where the BBC, everything was the BBC in, in England back then, but the BBC were looking to, to somehow, the light programme it was called, to entertain the folks, and there was a big surge of comedic talent come out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely one of the big turning points uh, for me, uh, and became one of my all-time favourites, and probably still is, if you have to say, if you have to ask me, who's your favourite comedian right away, it was Eddie Izzard, or is Eddie Izzard. Yeah, Eddie Izzard, yeah. And it all came about when, this was around 2000, and HBO showed his Dress to Kill special. Yes. Which wasn't his first one. I think he I think he filmed a couple of them prior, but this is the one that they showed, and we caught that on HBO, and <laughs> it just changed everything. Yes. And it was back, again, this was still videotape days. You know, yeah. There, there was DVDs coming out, but we taped it, and it was like we had to share it with all our friends. So, you know, we'd, we'd let so-and-so borrow the tape, and then they'd let the yeah. next person. We, we had to spread the spread the word of Eddie <laughs> throughout them. And it was just unbelievably a very, good. Very, very funny comedian. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, if you've never, unfamiliar with Spike Milligan, if you, uh, you are with Eddie Izzard, of course, as, yes. as we've just chatted about. If you then look at some of Spike Milligan's stuff and Tony Hancock's stuff, you will see it in Izzard. It's that same sort of completely surreal way of looking at life. And I remember, I'm no, I'm no expert on Eddie Izzard, but I remember that line, the monkey's in the tree, Le Sanjay Don Lao, Brian, yes. I kept talking about, right? Just, when he's trying to learn, yeah, yeah trying, trying where, to, where he's gonna use yeah, the- Where the, would I learn, where, 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 where would I use that line? How would that help me ever? The mouse is under the chair. <laughs> That's right, how, how does that help me get a beer in France? Is yeah. that sort of, yeah, but absolutely, great comic talent England I mean England and the States but I when I my experience is only growing up in England but England produced some great comic talent but a lot of it was based around that just looking at life from a completely oblique surreal take on life and that's what made pythons all of the pythons were like that they had that wonderful ability to not take life seriously Yes. Which in the 1960s and into the 1970s was a radical breakaway from everything that had gone before. It's like we just talked about sketch writing would have to have a start, a middle and an end. And uh, that, that breakaway, let's say the whole thing can be encompassed with what Python have done, Monty Python have done in the 70s. But it was always you don't need to do that. There is another way of, 
of finding the comedy in something and it's not to have and now um, when I look back on or hear some of the early comedy shows from the 1940s and 1950s and um, the BBC still put a lot of those shows out on BBC 4 Extra which again you can find online so if you a gentle listener if you're unfamiliar with BBC Radio it is extremely high quality and now with the internet we can listen to it with ease in the States um, so I think the app might be called Sounds now but if you look for BBC Radio um, we can get access to those shows BBC has a number of stations 1, 2, 3, 4, 4 Extra, 5, 5 Extra BBC, so Radio 1 uh, is music for the kids you know, the crazy kids. Um, Radio 2 is music for those in their 50s. Radio 3 is classic music. Radio 4 is all talk radio. Radio 4 Extra is all the comedy shows and drama shows that used to be on Radio 4 without 4 Extra. So they're all there, but I'm saying this because if you, if you want to research comedy and how comedy developed in the UK, uh, the BBC have got wonderful archives and everything is there. So if you want to hear a particular show, you can find it. 99% of the stuff there, I say it's not 100%, because some of those early radio shows, like some of the early TV shows, have been wiped or the tapes have been lost. Which is why I'm always surprised, you know, we talk about Doctor Who um, as being a show that I really liked in the, in the 1970s. And, the, uh, and a number of Doctor Who shows were reputedly lost forever. The tapes were taped over or they were lost or blah, blah, blah. And then it, it's a little bit like finding Roman coins in, in England. You think there can't be any more Roman coins to find. Surely we must have found them all. Or, you know, there cannot be another sarcophagus in, in Egypt. They must have all been located. And then another one is found. Yeah. And it's the same with Doctor Who shows or Dad's Army shows or anything that we, we thought was forever lost in BBC Radio, I think fairly recently, for reasons I'm, I'm entirely unable to explain, they tend to appear in Australia. I don't know, somebody's clearing out their attic in Australia and, oh, what's this tape? Oh, it's a lost Doctor Who episode. Who would have thought this would have been here, you know? Um, yeah, how did we get onto that? Not sure. <laughs> you mean we went off track? It's such a rarity. Anyway, yes, uh, the history of British comedy is not what we're talking about, but there's a lot of ex there's a lot of good resources out there if you're interested in. Well, I mean, this this topic, I mean, it's one of those we can barely touch the tip of the iceberg right, on right. all that's all that's out there and all that's been great and throughout the decades. I mean, you talk about the the early radio stuff, it makes you think, you know, the, just the Abbott and Costello who's on first routine absolutely will go down as one of the greatest you know written yes. pieces of all time. There is you know, absolutely no question and. Almost all of Laurel and Hardy, almost everything that Laurel and Hardy um, did in terms of movies, just there is a level of, of whether it's comic timing or it's just natural ability that is priceless stuff. And we're not talking about literature, but this is a, this is a connection to that. There's a, there's a there's a famous quote. Don't ask me who said it. Like. Classic literature will never go out of style because it can't be bettered. When you look back at brilliant comedians, that, that comedy of Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy or Spike Milligan or whichever great comic talent you want to pick on, it will always stand the test of time because it can't be bettered. Yeah. It frustrates the bejesus out of me when 
I'm a big fan of BBC Radio, as you've probably gathered, and uh, I grew up with it, and I love radio. But sometimes when the BBC put what they consider to be comedy shows out, and they're typically like, I think, 6.30 in the evening on Channel 4, on Radio 4, it's just not funny. They're not, they're, I mean, it might, might be just me getting old, but I think there's just no, there's a laugh track over the top of it to tell the audience when to find something amusing, and that's always, to me, the kiss of death. Yeah. Find this funny, we're putting a laugh track over it. Well, it's not, it's not funny. And my, my argument is always, look, if you can't, if you can't better what has gone before, just repeat what's gone before. There's no need to put these awful shows on. They just anyway, we're getting off topic, but yes, great comedy cannot be replaced um, because it hasn't been able to be replaced. Yeah, I mean, it is great nowadays that there are so many outlets and there there's things you can find, but there's something there's something lost when back in the '60s, early '60s, maybe you know late '70s, that all the country was watching Ed Sullivan. They're watching that same performer, or they're watching Milton Berle's show. Okay, you know that that. Yes, you were in front of the TV, but you weren't, you know, locked into a screen. But it was just the cultural thing of what you do at whatever time on that time of the week. What ninety percent of the country maybe tuned into the yes. one show, yeah. and it's something everybody shared. Yeah. And you, you were able to talk about it and and go along for the ride. Now you say, you know, oh, I'm watching this show or whatever, and half the people haven't heard of it or whatever. There's you've lost that kind of unity and, and enjoying the same yes. same I, thing I know, sometimes. I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean, and, and again, it was the same on the other side of the Atlantic in, in my childhood in England, that we knew that at seven o'clock on a certain day, this show was on, and at nine o'clock on another day, that show was on, and everyone was watching it. And unfortunately, and I think it's, a, it's, it's somewhat of a tragedy and a failing, but, and you just said it, the way that TV, um, and it's a very loose term now, TV, is structured is half of the shows that are winning awards I mean, I'm probably a bad example for this because although I've been working in television for 20 years, I'm not really hugely, huge, a huge fan of television. I watch it, but I'm not, I'm not absolutely glued to it. But half of the shows that are winning awards, I've never heard of because oh, I haven't way. got that particular streaming service. Exactly. If you exactly. haven't, got, I can't get to it anyway. If you haven't got Netflix, well, the show that's winning award you have never heard of, or Hulu, or. Amazon Prime or HBO, it doesn't matter, pick, pick your streaming service. But if you're not subscribed to that particular service, you're lost. You have yeah. no clue what it is. So those, for want of a better term, water cooler conversations that you would have yeah, the next more day. Yeah, they're spread out. And you, you, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm sure it's a great show. I have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but something that you know, uh, our listeners can, and I recommend this to anyone, as we were talking about comedians and, and getting back to the root of it being stand-up, when things get back to where you can and they'll, they'll be doing it, go to your local comedy club because I tell you, I, I love going to concerts and such, yeah. and, and we've, we've talked about that before, but I tell you, and I was looking into something for later this year, and it's a fairly big name, tickets start at $200 and just go up for, the, for a concert. Yes. But you can go to a comedy club for maybe 20 to $40, yeah. and 40 is pretty, it's going to be a big name act. and. You're in a nice little club, and you're maybe 10 feet away from the comedian. And I tell you, it's great value these days. We've, we've gone the past few years and saw, uh, to two we saw, you know, were Piff the Magic Dragon okay. and Drew Lynch. Okay. Both of them were on America, America's Got Talent. And here, you know, they came through on their, their tour. Tickets weren't that much. It was a very fun evening, and I think they were, again, 20 to $30 each, each seat, and it was 
very great good value, value for what you get. Yeah, great. And of course, you're going to help out, you know, some of the rising comedians too. And it's probably it's, it's something I recommend getting back to once the comedy clubs are able to, you know, get going again. You mentioned earlier on um, that I'm a fan of Rick Mayo. Uh, dear old Rick Mayo. I wish he was. I wish he was still with us. But there we go. Um, many years ago in Loughborough. A friend of mine invited me to join him at Loughborough Town Hall. Well, Loughborough is a small town anyway, at least it was back then. The university may have grown quite a lot, but the town centre hasn't grown very much. But Loughborough Town Hall was a very small venue. And Rick Mayo was playing in Loughborough Town Hall, and my friend asked me to go along with him. And I went, and it was a great evening. But the reason it was a great evening was A, I love his company. But B, the reason, I mean, it was a, it was a big name back then. And he was playing an incredibly small venue in an almost unknown town. But the reason he was doing that, he was working on his act. So he was rehearsing and trying out material oh, okay. on a small audience to see what was working and what wasn't working. Uh, and I was fascinated. Loved to see him anyway. His anarchic sense of humor is fantastic. But I, I, and it, at some point he was reading notes. Then he'd stop and go back and try something else. And, but just that interaction, when he would stop, and he wasn't sure where he was going with a particular sketch, and he'd read his notes. And then someone in the audience would start heckling him, just, you know, well, what are you doing reading your notes, Rick? And, but his ability to fire back instantly those acidic comments that would yeah. kill the heckler's dead and get the rest of the audience with him instantly on his side again, was, it was a, it's a remarkable talent that, again, back to where we started this, you either have that brilliant, natural, comic ability, or you don't. Oh yeah, it's no, it's it's not I the same as reading a script. Uh, some great actors can be funny, but they're not comedians. There's a different, an entirely different genre of, of of ability, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's that's again how I think Rickles was. You know, when we get back yeah. to him, there was one time that he was Dennis Miller had a show mm, 20 years ago or something like that, and he came on as the guest, and Dennis started talking and uh, Rickles said one word and Dennis fell out of his chair laughing so hard because he's just that bam bam yeah. you know and can do it yeah so yes it's it, it's a natural thing it's there or it's not there but I don't think you can ever really you can't develop that you can be a funny actor but you're not a naturally funny comedian it is it is an odd industry how folks feel attracted to that industry I mean for a first-time comedian I always think it's an odd thing quite frankly Kevin when when folks are asked what do they do for a, a living and they say I'm a comedian because it's almost like you can't you can't give yourself the title of comedian you have to win it you have to yeah. earn it right you can't say to the camera I am funny I am a comedian it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. You have to prove your worth on stage. But, but as, that's another thing, I guess. But that idea that for the first time, a young, unknown comic, keen to be a comedian, will take to the stage and read material, it must be ter terrifying. <laughs> when nobody knows you, nobody's got any idea of your personality. So unlike the Rick Mail thing we just talked about, where the audience already knows that Rick Mail character or Prickle's character, whatever it would be, you're on side with them because you know who he is to start with. But a, an unknown comedian, first time on stage, has got nothing to draw from. Yeah. No one in the audience is going to support who he is or she is because 
we've never heard of you in any way. <laughs> you've got to you've got to work that audience uh, with your material and. I, I take my hat off absolutely to anybody that, that wants to do that for a living and can make a success out of it. It's a brilliant thing. Make the, the ability to make people laugh is a fantastic skill. And it's to be, in my opinion, it's to be applauded and supported all the time. Well, I, th I think on the, on the opposite side, as a, as a, a viewer and listener of their comedy you never know what's going to strike you funny sometimes until it does yes you never know what's going to send you right over the edge you know and you just can't stop laughing yeah it is it's a very un it's yes you're right it's very mysterious what what folks find amusing and how it works yeah those anarchic moments in you know alternative comedy over in england or i don't know it's sometimes it's just a look to camera it's just that odd oh, yeah. look, isn't it? That's oh, yeah. all it takes, you know? But that one look to camera, and again, breaking what actors call the fourth wall, the invisible wall between what's happening on stage and the audience. Well, of course, with stand-up comic, uh, that's happening all the time. But in a movie, that very rarely happens until occasionally someone looks to camera. It doesn't happen very often. But when they break that fourth wall and that, that look, it's a wonderful thing. Curiously enough, Burt Reynolds, does exactly that, breaks the fourth wall in Smoking the Bandit one time. I don't know if you can remember this, when he's hiding from the cop yeah. and a cop chase. He's, he's jumped behind the building. It's exactly at that, yes. He, he's, he's, he's chucked the um, Trans Am around the back of the building and then and then he just looks to camera and smiles. Yeah. Just that one time. And he just turns and drives away. And it's a brilliant, it only happens that one time and it's a brilliant moment in the movie. Well, yeah. uh, speaking of that, that Made me, made me think of this too when they were filming Trading Places with Eddie Murphy right you know the, the part where the Dukes are explaining commodities to him yeah and the director told him when they said you know bacon like you'd find in a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich and they told him to just look at the camera and he at the time he said I, I don't understand why that's funny and to this day, it's one of the best moments because he looks like, really? <laughs> and it's become like one of the best uh, parts of the whole movie yeah it's but, um it's almost impossible to pinpoint how comic timing works or comedy in general works. It either works or it doesn't, but boy, if you've got it, you've really gotten it. If you haven't got it, I don't think it's something that you can ever really learn. Again, you can be a good actor and, and copy it and read script, and, but that natural comic ability is something very, very precious. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of timing, hopefully we, we've entertained today. Hey, how about that? How about if that? If we've made them laugh, that's even better. <laughs> how about that for a segue? Look at that. Yes, my clock says 39 minutes, so we better we better call it a day. I think so. And drop the curtain on this. Well, that was great fun. Good. Yeah, good. yeah. Well, yeah. I, like I, 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 I love every conversation we have, but I always love the contrast between what's happening in the States and over in England and how things develop and advance. And I always think, you know, I know we've got to get off air here, but I always think it's wonderful to... We always have to accept and acknowledge that we got here from there. And although it's very easy to look back on some early comedy and say it was just awful, how did we ever find that funny? Well, we changed it because it wasn't funny. We moved forward, we made advances, and we got here to the comedy that we do like because of the comedy we didn't like. Yep. We advanced to here from where we got here from there. And that's the same with everything, yeah. We better go. Gentle listener. <laughs> Join us again on another episode of Magic and the Other Guy. Bye for now. We'll be back.